Welcome back, witch bitches. It's time for yet another episode of the Philip Deal Podcast. I've got my cup of coffee here. Oh my god, I haven't rolled my ass out of bed till like 11 a.m. for the past couple of days. I have been exhausted. My sleep schedule has been all fucked up. But that's okay. That's okay because I've got my... Grande uh, grande chai vanilla latte enema. My pumpkin spice latte enema. (laughs) And I'm waiting for my morning shit as always. So the last time I podcasted, it was all about my dance career, or at least the first decade of my dance career. Now, you guys know that I danced for 30 years. I I literally started dancing when I was a little boy, around the age of five or six years old. And I didn't and I didn't actually technically like take a step back from not dancing until late 2016, early 2017. Thirty years. My my dance career spanned three decades. And we covered the first decade. Now we're getting ready to go into decade number two. So many things happened on a personal level to me going through the process. I mean, we all do. The first decade uh, was a lot. You know, I lost my grandmother. I traveled all over the world with the Kirov Ballet, went to New York, uh, became one of the most premier young teen male dancers in, (laughs) in America when I was a teenager. And then at a certain point in time, um, after dancing with the Kirov and all of that, I went to Berlin, Germany, danced there in a company for about a year, came back to the United States and basically crashed out. And that's kind of like where we're picking back up. We're picking back up where we left off. If If you did not hear the first podcast, my dance career... Uh, Go listen to that first and then come back and listen to this podcast because this is a continuation of the first one. So without any further ado, I'm going to get my act together. I'm going to get my shit together. I've got some notes in front of me because if I don't take notes, I'm going to forget stuff and then I'll be mad. And then when I come back, we're going to go right into the second portion of the podcast, the second decade of Philip Deal's dance career. So obviously, I'm not just going to talk about my dance career, but I'm also going to talk about my life, my life, my drama as it continued to unfold in my personal life along running parallel with my dance career. So I've got to give more context to what happened when I was dancing with the Komisch Oper in Berlin, Germany. By the time I actually got to Berlin, I was burned out. I was already burned out when I took the job and went to Berlin. And when I got to Berlin, I was just a mental and emotional basket case. I was really not prepared to go to a foreign country (laughs) at all, 
at all. Going to a foreign country was probably either the best or the worst thing that I could have done at that time in my life. Now, I just left the Kirov. Why I left the Kirov is going to be the subject of another podcast because that will tie in with my entire podcast talking about my alcoholism that also spanned almost 30 fucking years, okay? So I'm going to do a podcast on alcoholism and addiction and my struggle with alcoholism. But needless to say, when I went to Germany, I was very physically weak. And for some reason in Germany, the food just did not sit right with me. I mean, they eat really, really weird over there. I think the only meal that I could get down that I could stomach was Wiener Schnitzel. It's like a beaten piece of meat that's like fried, and then they put cheese sauce and mushrooms on top with potatoes. Uh, if you ever go to Germany and you go to a hotel, or they, they always eat like cheese in the morning and bread. A lot of cheese, a lot of bread, a lot of cured meats like prosciutto and sausage or food, uh, meats that are prepared like hams, stuff that doesn't go bad. And it's very, very salty and it just none of the food ever felt good. And they would eat a lot of boiled eggs. I remember eating boiled eggs and just vomiting them right back up. So my stomach and everything was tore up. And I was like 17, right? I was 17 years old, 17, going to turn 18 that year. And something happened. There are a few times in my life that I had like a spiritual awakening. I do not believe you only get one spiritual awakening, okay? You don't get one spiritual awakening and then that's it. You don't hit enlightenment and then that's it. Okay, anybody who really practices yoga and Buddhism will tell you there are stages to opening up to the spiritual. I had one of my opening up moments when I was in Germany. For one thing, um, I was living with a family of Jehovah's Witnesses, because remember, I was born and raised a Jehovah's Witness, and uh, my mom had actually found a couple who were Jehovah's Witnesses to ship me to Germany to live with. They were very nice people. Uh, I don't remember who they were, their names, but I can see their faces clearly in my head. Very nice couple. And they had some interesting books on the shelf. And one of the interesting books they had in their home was uh, Unlimited Power by Tony Robbins. And Tony Robbins is like a self-help guru. He's really into neuro-linguistic programming or rewiring your brain to think a certain way to be successful. It's a whole movement, of course, the neuro-linguistic programming, self-help community. You know, there's a million books you can buy about self-help. But I read Unlimited Power, and Unlimited Power is actually a very, very good book. I mean, it wasn't a, was a, a bestseller, and there's a reason for it. Those, the techniques that Tony Robbins gives in Unlimited Power, the meditations that he gives to change your brain, really work. But what was the result of doing all of those brain enhancement, neuro-linguistic programming exercises to rewire my brain? Well, suddenly I had a very deep desire for something spiritual. I had lived such a chaotic life. My, la my life was nothing but chaos for so long. Oh my God. There's one thread or word that I can use to describe my existence up to this point in time, even in my life. It's, the word is chaos. And like, not in a good way. 
Not like chaos magic. I mean literally a human shit show um, tumbling through life. And I had a deep desire one day to pick up a Bible. Well, the New World Translation. It's the Jehovah's Witness version of the Bible. Because I said, I want to read the teachings of Christ. I want to know what Jesus says. I opened it up to the book of Matthew, and in my heart, in my mind, I had decided that if there, were any, if there was a message that I needed to pull my life together and pull myself out of the garbage can that I had found myself in, Jesus would have the answer. So I'm kind of proud of myself. I'm proud of that. I mean, that's not something for me to laugh at. That's not something I'm making fun of. That's not something I'm being coy about. I literally had a genuine spiritual experience where I woke up and said, this is not all there is. I want to know the truth. I had no idea where the truth would actually lead me 20 years later, but it doesn't matter. I sat there and I read the Sermon on the Mount, and by the time I finished reading the Sermon on the Mount, I had actually decided I'm going home, I'm going home to Virginia Beach, I'm crashing out, I'm sleeping, I'm going to recover, my body is going to recover, I'm going to heal, and then I'm going to actively be a good Christian, good Christian boy. I was already baptized a Christian, but I wanted to be a good Christian boy. Called up my parents and I said, buy me a motherfucking plane ticket, I'm getting out of here now. I broke my contract with the, with the opera house. They were very mad. I walked in and sat down and said, I'm sorry, I can't be here anymore. And they were like, well, you have a contract for another, like, you know, two years to be here. I said, I will not be coming in tomorrow. I'm getting on a plane. I'm flying back to America. You can sue me. There's nothing you can do to keep me here. I can't stay here. I'm sick. I am not well. I, if I stay here, I could get very, very sick. I could die. Well, I left the opera house that day, never to hear from them again, and got on a plane within the next 48 hours, flew back home, crashed out. I literally crashed the fuck out and had decided that I no longer wanted to pursue dance in any fashion at all. It was not what I wanted to do in life. I wanted to actually pursue spirituality. Well, my mother, of course, found that to be a very unacceptable decision to make in life based on how much time, energy, and money that was spent on me to become a professional dancer. I told her, look, I'm done. I'm not dancing again. We're not doing this. So there you go. That, that, that wraps up. That's the story that really wraps up the first decade. Dance. Well, my mom was very, very tricky and very, very sly. And she said, well, we're back here in Virginia Beach. I'm going to find a place for Philip to dance. So now we're getting into the next decade of dancing that had a lot to do with everything I did in Hampton Roads, Virginia Beach, Norfolk, Portsmouth, Suffolk, and Chesapeake. Everything I did when I opened my dance studio down there working with kids, choreographing for kids, competitions, and working with the dance companies that were in Hampton Roads. Now we're getting into the local. We're bringing it home. One morning I woke up and my mom <laughs> said, get in the car, we've got errands to run. 
So I said, okay. I got into the car. Now what? I'm like, I'm like 18. Yes. Yes, I'm 18. And my mom starts driving to uh, up and down Virginia Beach Boulevard, and she finally lands in front of a dance studio. She pulls into a dance studio parking lot. And I said, why are we here? She said, there's a woman in there. Her name is Beverly Duane. She's a choreographer. She wants to meet you. I want you to meet her. I got so mad. I was mad. I was so mad. I was like, how dare you? How dare you bring me to a dance studio? I told you I want nothing to do with this anymore. Fuck you. I don't want anything to do with this anymore. And once again... A second time, my mother made a major intervention in my life to try to keep me dancing. The first time, as you remember, I don't remember if I told you this or not, but when I was about 11 or 12, I had also come to the decision that I no longer wanted to dance anymore because I was over it by the age of 13. My mom, when I told her that I was quitting dancing and I was never going to dance again, literally pulled the car over and faked a heart attack to get me to keep dancing. She literally faked a heart attack in order for me uh, to feel guilty. She guilt-tripped me into continuing to dance when I was a kid. And that's why I ended up going to the cure-off because I kept dancing through through that fiasco. So this is the second motherfucking time my mother has pulled some shit on me to keep me dancing. I said, I'm not getting out of the car. She said, fine, sit in the car. She got out of the car, she went inside. I sat in the car for about 15 minutes. Then my mom comes to the window with the look on her face like she's Satan the devil. She came to the, the, the window with the, the, the evil face like, I'm going to kill you. You're going to die if you don't come in here. Gritted her teeth, made her face at me, and made this gesture was, that was like, you get in here now. I was still very highly impressionable. Got out of the car, I went inside, and Beverly Cordova Duane, a uh, wonderful woman, choreographer, uh, artistic director of her own company, Second Wind Dance Company, was preparing to do an event with the Virginia Beach Marine Museum. I forget the name of it, but. Uh, It was down at the Virginia Beach Oceanfront. There's a museum. There's an ocean museum. They have fish in there. It's an aquarium. That's what I meant. The Virginia Beach Aquarium. She was putting on a modern dance piece about jellyfish because they were putting on a whole exhibit on jellyfish. There was going to be the jellyfish exhibit, and they wanted to have dancers come in and do like special shows, like on the weekends. So Beverly was like, you know, we're doing a project. I really, really need a dancer. It's very simple. I've got three other dancers uh, uh, and myself. Well, it was going to be Beverly, Stacy, and Shannon, who became um, three very close friends to me over the next decade, who were choreographers, dancers. And Shannon actually taught for me at my dance studio. She said, I need another dancer in order to make this work. I'm in a time schedule crunch and I need someone who can actually dance who can pick up choreography fast I said okay well I'll come into the studio I went into the studio and I started uh, moving with them next thing I know I'm dancing with Second Wind Dance Company and I continued to dance and perform with Second Wind Dance Company for almost a decade Um, 
Second Wind Dance Company was an adult modern dance company. There are only a few dance companies in the Hampton Roads area that were adults putting on adult, uh, uh, well, you would say it's a recital, but performances of modern dance, and Beverly was one of them. So I said, man, I'm so out of shape. Yeah, For about almost a year, nine months to a year, I had literally laid in bed and and laid on the couch and watched movies and just studied and read my Bible and all the publications by the Jehovah's Witness organization. I read all their books. Uh, I, I read the Bible twice from cover to cover. Um, I not only read the New World Translation, but I had the King James and the NIV and several other translations, the Catholic version of the Bible, New Jerusalem Bible. I was Bibled out. I was Christianed out and uh, very deep into it. Maybe one day I'll make a, a podcast that's more deep into the whole Jehovah's Witness organization, their history, their theology, what it's like growing up in that religion and what it's like getting disfellowshipped or excommunicated out of the religion. I'll go into all of that some other time. But I had spent a lot of time just reading and meditating and studying spirituality, and I was very out of shape. So I got a Bally's membership, Bally's Total Fitness membership, and I started taking ballet classes on Tuesdays and Thursdays from like, I think it was 11.30 to 1. There was a man named Albert Watson, a wonderful, wonderful man who used to dance with Alvin Ailey. And he would he taught adult ballet classes during the daytime for adults that used to dance. And I would go and I would take it at Norfolk Academy um, in Norfolk, Virginia. He was a great guy. And I think one thing that I forgot to tell you when I used to do international competitions is I actually ended up going to Varna, Bulgaria, to the largest international ballet competition in the world. I didn't place. But Albert Watson... Um, was one of my coaches that coached me on all of my variations and also my contemporary choreography that I performed when I went to Varna. So Albert was very important to me, very, very important to me. He was a great guy. He was a, a mentor to me. I looked up to him, and he really did clean up my technique. Taught me a lot. I love him to death. I wish him nothing but uh, love, peace, and joy, and good health. Same thing to Beverly. So I, st I started dancing with Beverly, and we put on this show at the, um, the aquarium. We were the jellyfish. There was four jellyfish. We had costumes that were very jellyfish-like, and it was cute. It was really cute. And then after we would do the little performance as jellyfish, kids that came to watch the show, we would teach them little modern dance moves and get them to move like jellyfish. It was really cute. I really enjoyed that, and I enjoyed it so much that Beverly said, look, I'd really love for you to dance with me if you're interested in doing more performances with me. You're more than welcome to join my troupe. I'm going to be doing a show like, I don't know, in three or six months from now, would you be interested in doing it? And once again, I am back into dance. Now, we need to take a step back. Because when I was getting ready to go to Varna, Bulgaria, being trained by Albert Watson, um, the Virginian Pilot, which is the largest distributed 
newspaper at the time. It was the largest distributed newspaper in Hampton Roads, um, I think almost in Virginia, decided that they wanted to do an article on me. My mom had contacted the Virginia pilot and said, my son is preparing to go to an international competition. It is very, very big. It's huge. It's like the Olympics of dance. It's the Olympics of ballet. Would you like to do a story on him? And so they sent a woman to follow me around for about a week. She, uh, she went to a performance I performed at. She would go to ballet classes and watch me rehearse. She'd see my rehearsals. And then what ended up happening, woke up one morning to the Virginia Pilot with me on the cover of the Virginian Pilot. I was on the cover. I was a cover story for the, um, for the newspaper. And I was the main spread. I was the centerfold. I was the center spread in that, ma in that newspaper that day, that week, that had all kinds of pictures of me and my story about how I danced, how I went to the Kirov, how I went to international competitions, and how I was going to Varna. If you go to my YouTube channel, you'll actually see... Oh, no, that was Paris. I'm sorry, wrong competition. But if you, if you go to my YouTube channel, you'll see a lot of uh, choreography that I used to do. You'll actually see me performing with Second Wind Dance Company on my YouTube channel uh, in my dance playlist of videos that I posted for you guys to watch. There is me performing two of Beverly Duane's routines with Second Wind Dance Company, Rush Hour and Silence. Now, I performed a lot with her, a lot, a lot, a lot. But those are two performances that I have on YouTube. So, you know, the wrapping up of my international competition career really happened when I went to Varna. I did not place. It was a shit show mess going there. It's a lot more complicated with a lot more moving parts than I care to remember or talk about. Then I also went to Paris a second time. The second time I went to Paris, I won my silver medal. I did not win uh, a medal the first time I went to Paris. I had to go there twice. I went back a second time and I medaled the second time. Silver medal, first American ever and youngest American ever to place in the International Contemporary Dance Competition in Paris. Let me have a sip of my coffee. Now, the studio that my mother had taken me to to meet Beverly was a dance studio, but it had gone defunct. And they wanted to, uh, whoever was teaching dance there left. They were not teaching dance there anymore. And they were looking for a new, uh, someone to rent that studio space uh, to, to keep the dance studio going. My mother and I and my father decided that we were going to make that the Philip Deal Dance Center. And I opened my first dance studio when I was 19. 19 years old and got the keys to this dance studio space and I started teaching dance and uh, we did well because a lot of the kids that came to take dance from me were Jehovah's Witnesses oh finally a place Jehovah's Witness kids could go to do something that would keep them in shape uh, and not conflict with uh, the teachings of the Watchtower so there was nothing any witnesses had to worry about because of the so many restrictions that are put on individuals from the religion. And I did very well because I became the dance teacher to a lot of witnesses. And that's what happened. 
That was the Philip Deal Dance Center. And I started the Philip Deal Dance Project, which was my own dance company, which had a lot of older teenagers in it and young adults and people in their early 20s that wanted to perform. And I actually produced, man, I think I produced, I think five shows. I think I produced five shows over a period of six years six or seven years. So we did a lot. We did a lot. And so the Philip Deal Dance Project became a thing. It was my own modern dance company. I still performed with Second Wind Dance Company. And then I came into contact with Todd Rosenlieb. Todd Rosenlieb was a modern dance choreographer who had moved from New York City, he used to dance with the Eric Hawkins Dance Company, came down to Norfolk, Virginia to settle, I don't know why. Uh, Very nice guy on the outside, rotten to the core on the inside. (laughs) I shouldn't say that. Very, very selfish person that used me very, very, very badly to get his company off the ground. So we're going to talk about Todd because I just want to call out Todd and talk about the experience that I had with him, one of the things I put him through, my exacting my revenge on him. So what had happened was Todd Rosenlieb was this guy who came down and he was hired by Virginia Ballet Theater to choreograph contemporary and modern pieces for their company. Uh, I don't know if the Virginia Ballet Theater is still operational or if it went defunct, but it was like the ballet company of Hampton Roads. They were the ballet company that would put on the Nutcracker at the Opera House, at the at the Virginia uh, Opera, Opera House, the Norfolk Opera House every single year. They were like the local dance company. So they had adults that were the uh, 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 principals and soloists, and then they had a lot of kids and they put on the Nutcracker every single year. Well, Todd had a falling out with Virginia, with the ballet company, and approached me because we had I had met and done performances with Beverly, where Beverly and Todd did some joint performances with one another. And Todd had this boyfriend that was living down in Puerto Rico, and his boyfriend was a choreographer, dancer, but lived in Puerto Rico and was planning to move to Norfolk. And what Todd needed was another man to form a troupe. It was Todd and me and two girls named um, Jackie and Krista that became uh, the core of what would become the Todd Rosenlieb Dance Center and the Todd Rosenlieb Dance Company. You can look them up online. And so for about almost a year... For about six months to a year, I would rehearse with Todd and we would go do all these performances at all these dance festivals uh, festivals up and down the East Coast. He sent me to Massachusetts with one of the female uh, dancers to perform with stars of the Dance Theater of Harlem one time. I did a lot for him. I danced my ass off, off for him and... We would put on these performances, very, very small performances with only four dancers. So he had choreographed a lot of routines that was like duets, trios, and uh, quartets. 
uh, just as part of his choreography. He had a lot of small group choreography that he could set on us. Well, he wheeled and dealed and wheeled and dealed until he got all the funding he needed to open up his studio in downtown Norfolk and used me, my image and my name and my clout, in order to get that money. It's like, I have professional, I have Philip Deal, you know, the famous professional dancer from Hampton Roads. He's in my company. We're doing this. We're performing. We're going to do this. And don't you know, after he got the funding for his show and after he got the funding for his dance studio, he fucked me over, man. He screwed me over. We had um, a particular routine that we did to Rufus Wainwright. It was a compilation of like three songs from Rufus Wainwright that was a quartet between me and Todd and Krista and Jackie. And we performed that. It was a, it's a great routine. We performed that for like a year. And we performed that all the way up to the grand inaugural performance of Todd's Company. So this was very involved. This was very in-depth. And I hardly got paid anything. I got paid like nothing to do this. I decided that I was going to do this. And I basically took uh, peanuts with the clout that I had as a dancer to be able to help Todd get his company off the ground. Well, this is what had happened that pissed me off beyond all belief. After almost a year of doing this quartet with Todd in these costumes that we performed in, I was also performing the routine in the grand inaugural performance. Finally, Todd's boyfriend comes up from Puerto Rico to Norfolk <clears throat> because he was going to be in uh, the performance. I was walking down the street in Norfolk, Virginia, and I was looking at the latest art magazine, portfolio magazine, uh, was an art, uh, uh, like little paper in Norfolk. And I saw the cover of portfolio and I saw Todd, I saw Jackie, I saw Krista, and I saw Ricardo his boyfriend wearing my motherfucking costume in a photo shoot that they went and did, they did not tell me about it, wore my costume for this photo shoot and slapped Ricardo, who had absolutely nothing to do with the company until like a month before the inaugural performance, on the cover. If you go to Todd Rosenlieb's dance studio, you'll never see a picture of me anywhere on the wall ever. You'll never see that I was associated with Todd Rosenlieb's company ever. As soon as his boyfriend showed up, well, I was no longer, you know, the other male founding dancer in his company. Oh, I was mad. I was so mad that I got fucked over like that, that after helping him get all that money, after helping him get his funding, after dancing my ass off for almost free for a year, that I was slapped in the face that I was not on the cover of that magazine. That's really important. I deserve to be on the cover of that magazine. I'm not being a cunt. I'm not being a bitch. I'm telling you, as a founding member, it should have been me on that magazine, not his fucking boyfriend. Well, the day came that we were going to do the inaugural performance. Okay, now this was like uh, a month and a half later. 
I had rehearsed. We were doing this big routine. Eric Hawkins' original work uh, was being uh, performed. Eric Hawkins was a very famous modern dance choreographer in New York, and uh, Todd had actually got the rights to do one of his very large works, Plains Daybreak, you know. Well, it was the day of dress rehearsal and the first performance of Todd's inaugural show. And my alarm went off at 8 a.m. I was supposed to get up, take a shower, get my dance clothes together, go down to the studio, rehearse all day, and then do the performance. Well, nine, well 8 a.m., my alarm went off, and I decided, I think I'm going to go back to sleep now. <laughs> So I turned the alarm off and I went to sleep. I woke up about an hour later. It's nine o'clock. I'm supposed to be at the studio. I'm supposed to be at the theater. So it's nine o'clock. I still don't feel like getting up. I don't give a fuck about Todd or anything he's doing today. Went, uh, went back to sleep. I picked up my phone and looked at like 11 o'clock. There was like 25 phone calls from Todd and all the other dancers, voice messages, the first voice message from Todd sounded like this. Hey, good morning. We're getting ready to start our rehearsal at the theater. I'm sure you're on your way. Just wanted to make sure that you're on your way. We're going to be starting in about 15 minutes. You still have about 15 minutes to get here and put on your dance clothes, and, and we're going to be getting started. The second message sounded like, where are you? You're supposed to be at the theater right now. We're, we're in the middle of rehearsing Plains Daybreak. Where the fuck are you? Get your ass over here. The third message was the irate messages. What the fuck? What are you doing? Where the fuck are you? What? 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 what <laughs> Screaming, cursing, mad, mad. Todd had high blood pressure, so, you know, he could have, like, popped. He could have dropped dead of, you know, a heart attack or stroke by that point in time. And then closer to about 1 o'clock in the afternoon, when I started heading over there, the voice message sounded like, <laughs> Philip, where are you? I don't know what I, I did, but I'm sorry. <laughs> Please come to the theater because we can't do this show without you. They couldn't do the show without me because I was like in everything. <laughs> yeah, I was mad. So about one o'clock, I open the door to the theater. I kind of stroll in. I look at everybody. Everybody is standing around. Their mouths are wide open. The girls, they're pale white. They look like they want to um, faint when they see me. Todd looks at me, his cunt boyfriend, Ricardo, <laughs> that asshole is staring at me. And I looked at them and I said, oh, hold on, um, let me put on my clothes. No one said anything to me. I just looked at him. I just looked at Todd. And when I looked at Todd, I shook my head. And he knew what he did. In that moment, he knew. He knew that I was very, very angry about getting fucked over by him. After that performance was over, I never performed for him again. I never talked to him again. Had nothing to do with Todd. But Todd literally wasted about two years of my life, used me as a resource, used my name for clout, 
got all of his funding, got his big performance put on, and completely acted like I did not exist after his boyfriend showed up from Puerto Rico to be in the show. So I had to put my finger on him. I had to put my finger on him for a minute and squeeze just so he realized how important I was to him. And if I would have not showed up for that performance, there wouldn't have been a performance. There would have been no way that Todd would have ever been able to do a performance if I was not present to do that performance. I let him know it. Let me sip my coffee over here. That is, the, that is my personality. That is a perfect example of who Philip Deal is. Perfect example of who I am as a human being. I will do anything for you. I will throw myself in front of a bus for you. I will spend all of my money on you. I will give you all of my resources. I will give you all of my time. I will give you all of my energy. I will give you my everything. Even if it's not for me, even if I want to see you succeed in life, I will give you everything. And I don't expect anything in return, but I don't expect to get spit on, slapped on, the, slapped in the face, kicked, or treated like a dog. After I do what I do for you, if you're going to treat me like that, it's over for you. It's over for you eternally. It's over for you. And that's what happened. That's what had happened. Um, I continued on my sweet little way doing my own Philip Deal dance project. You know, I put Philip Deal dance project um, events on hold because I was doing stuff for Todd. And um, that was my experience with Todd Rosenlieb. It's so hysterical and so funny that I just had to tell you that story. Um, so I hope maybe one day <laughs> Todd gets to hear me tell that story. Hey, Todd. <laughs> Fuck you. Uh, you, you know, you got, yeah, he was important enough that he made it into my podcast talking about my dance career, um, in Virginia beach, but I absolutely had to tell everybody about your shitty attitude and behavior. So there you go. That can stay in my podcast eternally for everybody to hear. See, that's how I am. I can be vindictive as fuck. I can be fucking vindictive as hell. And I do not let things go once I have a grudge. Ooh, it's really, really difficult for me to forgive people. Really difficult. Although I say to myself all the time, yeah, I forgive everybody. It's very difficult for me to get over that hump. And I don't care anymore. I let go of it a long time ago. I don't give a fuck anymore. It is what it is. What happened, happened. I'm not mad about it. I was mad about it. I'm not mad about it anymore. So... Let me look over here. You know, I, I had the opportunity to do some really, really great work, and I mean classic work. I mean work that was done by choreographers like Martha Graham, um, Eric Hawkins, and Anna Sokolow. Beverly had put on a performance where she had hired uh, a custodian of Anna Sokolow's work to come down and set a very important work that uh, Anna Sokolow choreographed about the Holocaust. And we performed that Holocaust routine at the opening of the Jewish Community Center in Virginia Beach. And it was just beautiful being able to do that original choreography. And now you got to remember throughout all of this, throughout all of this situation here, I am also going through, go back to listen to my other podcast about being raised a Jehovah's Witness. I am also at the same point in time, a Jehovah's Witness 
who's a closeted queer, who gets into a relationship with his first husband, gets in a relationship with Josh, gets excommunicated out of the Jehovah's Witness organization, goes to college, starts studying the religions of the world, living with Josh in Norfolk, Virginia, and doing all of this dance stuff at the same time. I'm doing all of this stuff at the same time. All of this fuckery, all of this shit show, all of that, and getting certified as a yoga instructor, I'm going through all of this all at one time, all at one time. How I ever did all of those things and maintained that level of fuckery and maintained that level of chaos that long remains a mystery to me, although I was drinking a lot. Alcohol played a very, very big role <laughs> in me being able to roll through one traumatizing event after another. Blam, 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 blam. Just keep drinking. Just keep moving forward. Just keep going. Everything is going to like end eventually. And that's how I lived. So yeah. Uh, we're going to take a little bit of a break. I'm going to take a little bit of a breather here and review kind of like what I talked about. And I need to talk more about the Philip Dale Dance Center, my dance school. I need to talk about some of my adventures at Bally's. Total fitness in the locker room. Make it a little sexy. And then talk more about how I wrapped up my dance career in Hampton Roads and then eventually moved to Massachusetts, to Boston, and started dancing here. So let's get back to talking about the Philip Deal Dance Project and Philip Deal Dance, the Dance Center. So as I told you, um, the dance studio that Second Wind Dance Company, when I met Beverly, for the very first time, was using this dance studio that nobody was using. Um, and my parents and I decided that we were going to take it over. It was on Virginia Beach Boulevard, very small studio, enough to fit one teacher and maybe 15 kids, 15 to 20 kids in the room, which is actually significant. I mean, it's, it's not like it was nothing to snuff at, but it was one studio uh, and I, and I was there for like five years. I had that studio for like five years. And so I, I kind of opened that studio right after having that big article done about me in the Virginia pilot. So there was enough advertising to start pulling in students and, and we did well. We did well until I got disfellowshipped and kicked out of the Jehovah's Witness organization. And then all of the Jehovah's Witness kids stopped coming to my dance studio and it was about a year or so, or two years after I got disfellowshipped out of the religion that we had to close for two reasons. The first one is that there was not enough money coming in to keep the place. And number two, I couldn't go to work every single day and see my fucking mother and aunt's face. Because even though I was disfellowshipped and I had nothing to do with my family, my mother tried to keep the business because as long as we were doing business with one another, we could have interactions with one another. Do you see how it works? Can't be friends with your family, can't be with your family, but if you work or do business with them, then you're, you have to, you're required to. So based under that level of stress, I would throw up. I would be driving to work 
to teach my dance classes. And I would almost get to the studio and I'd have to pull over and open the door and throw up because I was under that much stress with that dance studio, keeping that dance studio open, dealing with my family. I did meet a lot of really great kids. I choreographed for them. I taught them dance. I became a dance teacher. Oh, excuse me. I started teaching the kids, choreographing dance routines for kids, taking them to dance competitions, and I really, really enjoyed that. I really had a very good time for those years that I acted as a choreographer and a teacher, teaching kids. And then, oh man, I didn't want to go into this. Did I want to go into this? Am I going to go into this? Yeah. Why don't we go ahead and do it? We're going to do a surprise, surprise part of the podcast. Surprise part of the podcast is closer to the end of my career teaching kids dance and choreographing uh, dance competition routines for them. That is when I actually decided to start doing adult entertainment. I guess we can talk about my drag career now. What happened was after me and Joshua got disfellowshipped and kicked out of the Jehovah's Witness organization, we went on a quest to meet other gay people. Okay, so this is where the podcast is going. Let's go down this road. Never going to really make a podcast uh, about me being a drag queen as its own episode, so we're going to go ahead and wrap up my life and lifestyle as a drag queen in this particular show. (laughs) We're getting there, everybody. We're getting there. So after me and Josh got disfellowshipped, we started going to gay bars because we wanted to meet other gay people. We we were um, freshly out of the closet and just absolute young 19, 20-year-old guys or 20, 21-year-old guys. I think we were both 21 by that time. Because we got into the Rainbow Cactus, and to get into the Rainbow Cactus in Virginia Beach, you had to be 21. We got into the Rainbow Cactus, and uh, we started interacting with gay bar people and became friends with gay bar people. (laughs) And anyone who's gay and a man who's in the gay community understands when I say we got involved with gay bar people. Gay bar people love you when you're at the bar, and when you're not at the bar, you don't exist. You know, I I never experienced that before, where people were so uh, flaky. And and the bar lifestyle in in the gay bars is, it's a whole lifestyle that you live. And I met a man named Angel. And Angel is also known in Virginia Beach as Mercedes Douglas. And Angel had a thing for me from the moment he saw me. The first time we went to the Rainbow Cactus, I literally wore a pair of pink corduroy pants, cowboy boots, a cowboy hat, and a black vest with no fucking shirt on underneath it and walked into that gay bar looking like Midnight Cowboy. <laughs> walked into that that rainbow cactus like a motherfucking hustler. Every eye was on me. My hair was bleached out, almost white, blonde. I was that guy. I was that boy. I was that boy. And Angel just loved me. 
and we became friends. An angel helped me out at times, and Angel also treated me very, very, very poorly at times. We'll talk about one of those times. But Angel came up to me and said, Oh, girl, you are beautiful. You are beautiful. And I was really beautiful when I was young. Not like I'm not beautiful now, but when I was young and blonde and dancing full-time, I was really angelic. I had a beautiful body, a nice big ass, beautiful muscular ass, ab- visible abdominal muscles, and I was really cute. I was really cute. You can actually go to my Philip Deal Dance playlist, and you can watch me doing Free, the routine I choreographed called Free, and Malted Milk. If you go watch those, uh, those dance performances, you'll see what my body looked like at that time. Um, now I'm mad that I didn't go into porn and become a porn star as soon as I left the Jehovah's Witness organization because I would have made a lot of money, or maybe not, um, if I had gone into gay porn at that point in time in my life, but I didn't. But uh, Angel said, you need to do drag. You need to do drag. Your face is so delicate and beautiful that you need to do drag. I would love to do your face. I'd love to do your makeup. So I started hanging out with the drag queens. Because I was, I, I was fascinated with the idea of a man dressing up as a woman. Now, I had seen Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Love Julie Newmore when I was young. I had watched Priscilla, Queen of the Desert when I was younger. I had a thing for drag queens already. Like, I admired them. So I was like, yeah, I would love to do this. Josh hated it. Oh, my God, Josh hated it. He absolutely hated it. He was totally 100% against it. He let me know about it and punished me for it for wanting to do drag. He was such a jerk. Um, very, very selfish, very, very controlling, and <laughs> was one of the most miserable 20-year-olds I've ever met in my entire life. Did not know how to have a good time. Absolutely, probably still doesn't know how, how to have a good time. I hope he's mellowed out in his old age. But um, we, I went over, and Mercedes did my face, and I swear to God that in my drag photos, I'm going to post um, a video of my drag photos for everybody to see. Me as a drag queen. Uh, all I have is some photos. But you will see that I did a lot of impersonations. I look like Carol Burnett. I did Liza Minnelli. I did Catherine Zeta-Jones from Chicago. Everyone loved my Catherine Zeta-Jones. Um, and I did Madonna. I would do Madonna. What I would do Madonna at the Rainbow Cactus. I would be the closing act when I did my erotica routine. And I swear to God that people would be getting on stage throwing ten dollar, twenty dollar bills at me when I was doing erotica. So what would happen is erotica would begin the song erotica, and I would come out. Now I had really, really, really short, bleached out blonde pixie hair. Like, I had short blonde hair for a dude, but when I styled it, it looked like a pixie. Like what Madonna looked like when she was in The Girly Show, when she was touring The Girly Show. I came out, I had a white blouse on with a black corset around um, my waist. I had on black booty shorts. Um, I had on these thigh-high black patent leather boots. I had a whip and I had the mask. I would come out and I would do erotica. 
and I would, you know, put my boot on the table. I would make people lick my boot, you know. I would bend them over my knee. I would spank them. I would do all of those naughty, silly BDSM things during erotica. And then at the very end of erotica, I would take the mask off, and it would go into human nature. And when it went into human nature, the clothes started coming off. And by the end of it, it was literally me like in a black G-string and thigh-high boots without anything else on, total boy drag, total David Bowie, uh, Culture Club, every other uh, you know male artist that you can imagine that did that gender-bending shit, Rocky Horror Picture Show. I turned into basically Tim Curry by the... <laughs> By the end of my routine, I was like basically Tim Curry, and it was so fucking awesome. Oh my God, was I the bomb, and I didn't get video of any of it. I'm so mad that I didn't get video of that. God, some of my best performances of my life were performed in gay bars doing drag, and I'll never have them, never have them. All you can imagine is me doing Madonna, doing erotica, doing human nature, and being absolutely filthy, just like I was when I did pole, pole dancing, and burlesque. And it was that side of me, that sexual side, that raw sexual side, that exhibitionist side that I always had my whole life. I still have that exhibitionist thing, obviously, if you follow me on Twitter. And... Uh, my partner at the time, Josh, he just hated that. He just absolutely hated that aspect of my personality, which is why eventually I had to get the fuck out of there. <laughs> I had to be me. I had to be myself. Um, and who I am is an entertainer, an exhibitionist, a highly erotic person. And that's just what I am. That's just who I am. I can't help it. It's just biologically driven. I don't have a lot of control over my sensuality and my eroticism. And that was a part that he always hated. He was always embarrassed. It embarrassed him that I did those things. So needless to say, I did drag. And my kids knew that I did drag. Like I did the drag thing and even my students knew that I was a performer and an entertainer and I worked in a bar. And it was very, very, very... Um, uh, it, it kind of shocked everybody when Philip Deal, the you know the greatest male professional ballet dancer that had ever come out of Hampton Roads, decided that he wanted to do drag. Decided that he wanted to do this kind of entertainment. I always, I don't want to be a woman. I've never wanted to be a woman. I am not a trans person. Um, I've always been uh, kinky. I consider myself heteroflexible. I'm primarily. Uh, I'm not gay. Uh, my sexual orientation is I, I'm in relationships with women. My primary relationships are with women. After I left Josh, I started dating women, and I have continued to date women. Uh, never went back to being with any men as far as being in a relationship, even though I tried, did not like it, did not want to be in it, was not gay, didn't want that relationship. And I know that sounds absolutely fucking crazy. It sounds crazy, Town, that like for the first, you know, 25, 26 years of my life, I primarily thought that I liked men. I primarily thought that being with men was who I was, that I was gay, and that I would meet a man and I would be with a man. But something happened around the age of 26, 27, where I was like, I don't have any interest in being with men at all. 
you know, what I really want is to have sex with women. I want to enjoy women and I need a woman. I need that opposite to balance out my personality and balance out my energy. And every woman that I've been with has been that balance for me. Doesn't mean I don't fuck around with men or screw around with men. I mean, I'm a sex worker. You guys know that. As an erotic massage therapist, I have massaged thousands and thousands of men and been erotic and worked in the erotic industry with men my whole life, but that doesn't mean that's my sexual orientation. I really don't have a sexual orientation. I made a TikTok about this. I, I said, you know what my sexual orientation is? Everybody wants to know what your sexual orientation is. It's nobody's goddamn business who you fuck. But I said, I'm cauliflower. My sexual orientation is cauliflower because, you know, cauliflower doesn't really like taste like anything, but it'll taste like whatever you put on top of it. That's me. I'm cauliflower. I've always been a gender bender. Um, I'm not non-binary, but when I used to put on my dress and put on my makeup and my heels and go out and entertain and perform, I really enjoyed being an entertainer. Because to me, being a drag queen was about entertaining and making other people laugh. You know, it's kind of like being a clown. I'm sorry, I'm going to say this. Of course, being a drag queen isn't, you're not a clown if you're a drag queen. That's not what I mean. But I mean, like the drag queen is like the epitome of pride. Who is at the, who is standing in the center of the float, you know, at pride parade? Who is, who is marching on the front lines of the pride parade, you know, with the, with the pride flag in their hand singing, um, I'm coming out, you know, singing Diana Ross, uh, I'm here, I'm queer, I'm proud of who I am. They're the drag queens. The first person to pick up a brick at Stonewall and throw it at a police officer when the Stonewall, Stonewall riots happened and, and, and gay people started saying enough enough police brutality, we're not going to stand for this anymore, we're not going to be treated like this anymore, was a black transgendered woman. And so trans people, trans women, and drag queens have always been the backbone of what would be gay culture in gay bars because they are the MCs that basically run the show and steer the community. People don't realize that, how important drag queens are in the gay community or how, they, how important they used to be. Before it was RuPaul's drag racing and all of that and it became more commercial and everybody views drag queens as a, as a part of the gay community or gay culture. They don't realize the importance that drag queens played throughout the evolution of the LGBT community's path to equality. I enjoy, and I loved it. I wish I would have gone to Miss Gay America. If I would have gone to Miss Gay America and performed Catherine Zeta-Jones or Madonna or done one of those things, oh, I would have, I, I, I really think that I would have done very well. I think I would have placed very high if I would have actually done that, gotten into drag. Like more than just performing in bars every single weekend with Mercedes. I mean, like actually tried to do it like professionally. I think I would have done it well, but I didn't love it. I, I didn't want to do that. That's not, that wasn't my love, my passion in life. Something I really enjoyed doing. Um, closer to the end of me hanging out with Mercedes is when I met the mother of my daughter. Uh, and when I started doing adult entertainment, when I started doing pornography and porn and shooting my own porn. 
Let me look at my phone right here and let me look at my checklist, please, on my podcast. We're going to go ahead and talk about this. We're going to go ahead and talk about how I transitioned into the world of porn and uh, jack-off videos. We're going to go ahead and talk about it. So at some point in time, in my late 20s, I had left Josh. I had already gotten into doing erotic massage, posting ads on Craigslist, and taking erotic appointments. I made a podcast already about how I became a male-for-male erotic massage therapist, a male-for-male tantric body worker. You can go listen to that. That's the full story. But I started doing erotic body work to make money, and, and I decided that I wanted to, wanted to masturbate in front of everybody, and I wanted to make a jack-off video, and I wanted to upload this video to Xtube. Xtube... Um, social media site like Pornhub, Xhamster, where you can shoot your own porn, upload it, create a user profile, blah, blah, blah. I created an account on Xtube and I jacked off to watching Xtube videos for a very long time. But then I decided, you know, I want to upload my own video. So what had happened was one day when I was feeling really, really horny, I pulled out my little video camera that I had and I turned it on and I started playing with myself and doing my thing. I started doing my thing and made a little video. Like, it was a couple of minutes long, but it was really, really hot, and I showed off my ass, my hot ass at the time, my big old cock, put it on Xtube, and I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I just put this on Xtube. Like, I could have never done that when I was with Josh. I had wanted to do some, like, porn stuff and put it up when I was with Josh, but he forbade me to do it, so I didn't. But then um, I, I, I said, okay, I uploaded the video. Later, a cu- later on in the evening, I went back and looked at it, and there was like 25 views on it, 30 views on the video. A couple of guys had said, yo, man, that's a hot ass. That's a real big cock, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. I can't believe other people saw me do that. And then I, like, went to sleep. A couple of days later, I decided that I was going to jump back on Xtube um, and check on my video. And when I did, it had like 150, 200,000 views on it and it went viral. There were some gay porn bloggers that had saw my video, thought it was really hot and decided to post it on their blogs that had a very, very large distribution of followers that, wow, look at this new guy. This guy's really fucking hot. And my video went viral. And I was absolutely mortified. Is, is that the word? Like, I, let me be really clear. I am shameless, okay? I am shameless. I, I will pull down my pants and show off my dick anywhere <laughs> to anyone that asked to see it. I am literally that, I, I guess it's, exhibitionism but like maybe not in a negative way more like a performative way i think dicks are funny i think nudity is funny i think girls with big titties are funny i think skimpy clothing is funny i think risque humor and risque jokes are funny i think kinky things are funny i think bdsm things i find sex to be enjoyable fun and pleasurable when i left the christian shit 
and I left the Jehovah's Witness stuff, I was like, Christianity is completely against nature. It has absolutely nothing to do with the real world because everybody has to eat. Everybody has to drink. Everybody has to sleep. Everybody has to piss. Everybody has to shit, and everybody needs to orgasm. It is biologically driven. Matter of fact, orgasm, I think, is was God's way of sweetening the deal. You know, it's like, orgasms feel so good and ejaculating feels so good it's it's highly motivating for men to want to do that in order to procreate it's like the reward you get from for procreating sex and orgasm and sexual enjoyment and eroticism is like the perks that you get from doing your job of creating new life that's what i really believe that's my belief i'm a witch that's what i believe so i find erections and ejaculation and women uh, and, and female squirting and all of this stuff, I find it to be very funny, pleasurable, and enjoyable. I don't, have those I don't have that stigma against sex that a lot of other people have. I just don't. Um, and so people might think that's perverted or perverse for me to be that way, but I don't see it that way at all. I don't think I'm a pervert. I just think I'm very, very sexual. And um, so I, so when I realized that, well, you know, now that like 150,000 people have seen me naked and watched me jack off, maybe I'll make another video. And then I started making another video and another video and another video. And every single video I posted got 100,000 views, 200,000 views, 400,000 views, 500,000 views. And like eventually, like over a million people or more saw me all over every single tube site jacking off. And I declared myself the jack-off king of the world. Another thing that I did to be very, that made me very popular and unique on Xtube, because at one point in time, I was the most viewed Xtuber on Xtube. When you went to the Xtube website and you logged in, the number one user at the top of the screen on the home page was Adam Likes Apples. Yes, my username was Adam Likes Apples, and I went as Adam, and I created an entire alias known as Adam that um, everybody still knows, everybody that knows me from back in the day. And I'm, that was back in like 2007, 2008. Yeah, 2007, 2008 is when I started doing my jack-off videos and had my little celebrity status as an amateur porn star. I won um, Best Video of, Ye of the Year at the Amateur Porn Star Awards um, hosted by Exotica in Miami, Florida, presented by Xtube. So I actually won. I'm an award-winning amateur porn star. Ha-ha! That's what happened. And let me tell you, when I actually started doing the porn and when I started doing all of the stuff, I realized pretty much immediately, this is what's going back to children and working with kids and competitions and stuff. I realized if I'm going to do jack-off porn and everyone in the world is going to know who I am and know my face and, and, and see all of this stuff, I absolutely cannot teach kids anymore. It, it was just, it was inappropriate for me to want to continue to be in the dance world and choreograph for kids and teach kids dance while at the same time um, doing pornography. That was not going to end well for me because of how many people have this this feeling about people that do porn and pornography and um, 
and, and children's exposure to adult entertainment and adult things, you know, and I agree. I agree. And so I said, this is, I, I told the parents, I said, look, I started doing porn. Of course, the parents that I worked with giggled and laughed and they're like, of course you did, Philip. Of course you started doing porn. I was like, I can't teach your kids anymore because I can't pursue my little career over here as an amateur porn star and sex worker because doing amateur porn really fueled my industry as a sex worker, you know. It's a calling card. People want to say, oh, you do erotic massage? Yeah, I'm Adam Likes Apples on Xtube. You can go watch my videos. Of course, they go watch my videos and they're immediately booking an appointment to get an erotic massage, right? So, I mean, it was very good for me. It was lucrative at the time to do that. Supported me, supported my lifestyle for a very, very long time. Allowed me to work when I want, whenever, whenever I wanted, wherever I wanted. And I had a lot of mental and behavioral problems and I had a lot of physical problems and, and eventually, you know, um, being able to work on my own was the best way for me to make money by myself. I was able to make money by myself and take care of myself by living by myself and having men come over and do massage on them. But I said to the parents, yo, I can't do this anymore. And they're like, yeah, we get it. We understand. You know, people are assholes. And so I stopped teaching the kids and went on to pursue my career in adult entertainment. Now, where did this fuck me over? I've been trying to decide for a very long time whether or not I was going to discuss this or not discuss this, but I think I will. It was at that point in time when I started doing erotic massage, when I let go of the kids and I stopped teaching them and I moved into amateur porn and being a minor celebrity, you know, uh, influencer. They call them influencers now, but back then I don't there wasn't really a name for it. Influencers. Porn influencers. I met the mother of my daughter. And the mother of my daughter and I hooked up and we were together for a brief period of time. And then after after we were together for a little while, I realized that, you know, our relationship was not going to work out. So I left, and about three months later, four months later, I got a text message from her telling me that she was pregnant. She texted me this on Valentine's Day. I was driving in the car when I read the text. I almost wrecked my car. I pulled over, and I said, are you sure? And she said, I'm sure that it's yours. I wasn't going to tell you that it was yours, but I decided that you should know. She should have never told me that. She should have never, if she, if she wouldn't have wanted me to fight for me to be able to try to see my child, she should have never told me. She should have taken off. But I'm glad that she told me. But what happened over the next few years became the nightmare of my life, dealing with this woman that became the mother of my beautiful daughter, who I love very much, that I talk to now. <laughs> that she's a teenager. But back then, it was a very, very, very bad situation. Um, I did not know that my daughter was born until like two and a half months, three months after she was born. Um, I tried to get back with Athena. 
Yeah, her name's Athena. I tried to get back with Athena for a brief period of time because I felt very guilty. I didn't want to not be a father. I didn't not want to be responsible for the child. But it it didn't work out. And after that, after it didn't work out the second time, she stopped talking to me and the woman hasn't looked in my direction or breathed in my direction or talked to me except for a few times over legal matters over the past, you know, 13, 14 years. So what had happened was she did not put my name on my child's birth certificate. And I had to fight legally. I had to take her to court to get my name on the birth certificate to be able to win joint custody of my daughter. And the shitty, nasty thing that she did to me, I'm just going to point it out there. There's a lot of good men out there that want to be good fathers that end up with these nasty cunts, these baby mamas that want to make their lives absolutely miserable. And this woman has made my life miserable as long as my daughter has been alive and continues to make my life miserable. <laughs> That's just the truth. And my she when we went to court... I had to do a paternity test to prove my paternity in order to get my name on the actual birth certificate. After the name was actually on the birth certificate, we went to court. I was awarded joint custody over my daughter, although my daughter has been with Athena and lived with Athena ever since. Athena picked up and took off and ran away to Utah, and at the, point, at the, at the time in my life, deep into alcoholism, a sex worker, a, an amateur porn star living a very, very sloppy life, doing a lot of things that were not legal at the time. Um, I didn't have any other option but to watch her walk away with my daughter. I, I did, and I want to be honest with you. I did not have the ability at the time that my daughter was born to be a good father. I did not, I did not have the skills to be a father. I did not have the intelligence or the emotional intelligence to be a father. And I also was living a lifestyle that was really, really, really dirty and raw and very adult. There was no room for a child in my life for what I was doing at that time. It would have been really, really bad. I'm going to be honest, and I know that one day my daughter is going to listen to this. It would have been really, really bad to have a little girl in the middle of all of the stuff that I was doing. So... In that sense, I'm grateful to Athena that she took my daughter and raised my daughter in an environment that was safe and quiet, surrounded by family, and lived their life as I had to process through my garbage in life, work out my own karma, and get to the other end of my alcoholism. That's the truth. Wow, goddammit, what a fucking moment of truth in life right now. It's like 119... The day before Christmas, 2022, I'm just, I've just, I've just given you the most intimate piece of information I could possibly give to you or to anyone about like my life, like the biggest tragedy of my life. There's only two things in my life that I regret, that I really, really regret. And um, one of them is not being in my daughter's life. But do you know what Athena did <laughs> to try to prevent me? which she has tried to prevent me and block me from seeing and talking to my daughter her entire life. When we went into court, she actually had the balls 
to tell the judge that she was a f concerned about my daughter's safety around me because of the fact that I did porn and amateur porn, as if I would like sexually molest my own daughter because I did porn, because I was an amateur porn star, because I did adult work, that she was concerned about her daughter's safety. Ain't that some shit right there? Ain't that some shit? She didn't believe that. <laughs> she didn't believe that. But let me tell you, that bitch sure pulled that card out of her back pocket as soon as she got in front of the judge. I had a lawyer. And my lawyer said to the judge, Your Honor, my client is an adult entertainer. He does, a, he does adult entertainment. He is an amateur porn star. But there is absolutely no criminal record on him of having any kind of inappropriate behavior or any kind of sexual misconduct, no felonies, no, no nothing, no accusations against him. There's absolutely no reason to think that Mr. Deal um, would be a harm or hazardous to his child because he's in the adult entertainment industry. And the judge at the time, surprisingly enough for being in Southern Virginia, said, I agree. And he was like, um, you know, without any kind of criminal record, Miss So-and-so, I can't block your, the father of your child from seeing his child just because you don't like what he does. And that was the end of it. Not going to go into it. I'm not going to go farther down that path. That was a very important part of my life. It happened. It's not really something that I talk about publicly ever. I have made TikToks about my frustration as a man dealing with a woman who has made my life miserable and prevented me prevented me for a very long time to communicate with my daughter. What ended up happening was after Athena took off and went to um, Utah, um, I lost contact with them for a very long time. And we made the agreement that I would leave them alone, she would leave me alone, and if at any point in time in the future my daughter wanted to contact me, she told me, I will not prevent my daughter from knowing who you are. I will not prevent her from contacting you. If she ever gets to an age that she wants to contact you, I will not prevent her from doing that. But I am absolutely not going to help you in any kind of way have communication with her. So what ended up happening in... Now, this is an amazing thing. Okay, everybody, this is an amazing thing, and which is why sometimes I really do believe that our lives are orchestrated, or become orchestrated over time by the forces that be. 2016 was when I had my major breakdown. 2016 is when I quit drinking, and I went into rehab, and I, be and I got sober. My next podcast now, absolutely 100%, now that I'm looking at the things that I wanted to talk about, uh, is definitely going to be about alcoholism. Definitely need to talk about alcoholism and addiction and my life and how I functioned as an alcoholic. But I had gotten sober in 2016, November 7th. 
are six. November 6, 2016, I opened my eyes from a coma in a rehab facility in Worcester, Massachusetts, and I started getting my life together. And I've been sober ever since. But don't you know, in 2017, something happened. I opened my email, and there was an email from uh, my, my daughter's grandmother, Athena's mother, saying, hey, this is Tracy. And I love Tracy. She is a goddamn saint. She has always been very good to me. She has always disapproved about the way I was treated, okay, uh, by Athena. And she said, your daughter wants to know who you are. She's asking about you, and she wants to talk to you. And it was at that point in time that the communication barrier between me and my daughter opened back up, and Tracy, as the grandmother, became the, she became the uh, mediator between being able to deal with me and my daughter being able to uh, see me or talk to me and interact with me. So uh, it's been a very, very difficult road. It's been very depressing. It has been one of the worst things that ever happened to me in life was being separated from my own child, not being able to see her. Um, still having very limited communication with her because of the way that Athena behaves towards me. So that is a lot of life to pack into 36 years. Now I didn't even go down the route of talking about my pole dancing career. We will talking about we will start talking about um, I want to go back to porn. I want to talk about my porn career. I want to talk about how I became a burlesque entertainer in Massachusetts. I want to talk about the slut cracker. Yes, the slut cracker. I want to talk about um, my life as a pole fitness instructor and doing pole dancing. You can see videos of me pole dancing on my YouTube channel also in my dance videos. And then I want to talk about uh, my alcoholism, uh, overcoming alcoholism and being a sober person today. And I would like to get uh, the rest of my podcasts finished by the first of the year. I think I'm probably going to be publishing another podcast before the first of the year that's going to pretty much wrap up um, the first 42 years of my life up until this point in time. It's definitely something that I want to get done by January. But I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Um, I hope you learned a little bit more about me, found it entertaining to listen to, you know, and I love you guys. I love my audience, you guys that follow me and listen to my stuff. You mean the world to me. You know, like John Mayer says, let's grow old together. Uh, thank you for listening to me talk about my life. It really means everything to me. And I hope you enjoy this podcast, and I hope you come back to hear another episode very soon in the future. Love and light.